Hello, hello. So great to have you here today. Thanks for listening in. Before we even get to chapter number five, lesson number five, uh, we are now into part two of the book. So let's talk for a moment generically about the rise of philosophical and religious ethics, which become the cornerstone of part two of the book. And this moves us from the earliest tribal traditions into a new era. We're still a long ways from our modern civilization, but we are advancing from the earliest gatherings of human beings into tribes into a much more advanced stage of human history as we take this turn here in part two of the book, Reading in Ethics. And oh, if you're stumbling onto this podcast or this Substack account for the first time, uh, welcome again. And the course that we are doing, we're reading from a book called Readings in Ethics. And every single week we take just one little piece of wisdom literature. We break it down and hopefully build it back up with some newfound or practical tidbits of advice or wisdom uh, that we can apply to the world around us. So I would love to have you subscribe to my Substack page and, and the course would be delivered and will be delivered to your inbox every Friday, which is the day that we release these. So Anyway, part two of the book. Crazy, we're already here. Although, uh, we're going to start with some ancient Chinese texts. I would be remiss if we didn't talk just for one minute about the rise of philosophical and religious ethics and leave out the Greeks and Romans for just one second. The Greek and Roman world, at least, uh, the, the ancient period started around 5th, 4th century B.C., Uh, was the emergence of the age of philosophy. It obviously wasn't the same in both cultures. In Athens, the turn was towards the theoretical or the philosophical, and then with the Romans, towards the primarily a practical approach to knowledge. Uh, The Romans were engineering, they were military, they were practical, And the Greeks, I guess you could say, were more philosophical and artistic. We see the emergence of the Greek theater, for example. The approaches to life, truth, and ethics was very different. But but each, in their own way, were profoundly important to the development of the body of knowledge in the area of morals and ethics. As we move from that tribal tradition, that tribal era that we've been talking about, the shift from an oral to a written tradition is now complete and we never go back. The rise of the first universities, the development of systems of logic, formal argumentation, and the art of rhetoric uh, start this new academic tradition. And, And here's where we move to epistemological approach to our morality. And so here we go again, another big formal philosophical word. So let's just define it real quick. So we all stay grounded in practical stuff and not academic fluff. So epistemology is nothing more than a branch of philosophy that's concerned with knowledge. Epistemologists study the nature, origin, and scope of knowledge. Epistemic justification, the rationality of belief, and and various related issues. So with the rise of formal education in universities, this makes perfect sense as the next step in evolution of thought. This philosophical approach reached its height with the Greeks in Plato. 
who argued that we can ascend to universal truth, a speechless contemplation of, quote-unquote, the good, the mystic and transcendent implications of, of Plato's position were were elaborated on in Neoplatonism in Rome, and, and it continued all the way to the medieval period and found its way to several religious traditions, including Christianity. Alongside, alongside of Plato's sometimes dissenting pupil, his name was Aristotle, a, a series of moral schools began to develop. Often these were taking inspiration from the life and heroism of Socrates. If you've studied philosophy at all, or maybe even if you've not, the schools of thought are pretty well known. Sophism, skepticism, cynicism, stoicism, epicureanism, as well as platonism and aristotelism, along with the folk moralisms of Aesop's fable, added depth scope to this range of moral speculation, which was broad and wide and diverse. So when you hear the old saying, Everything important that needed to be said was already said by the 4th century BC. Everything else is just a regurgitation of it. Uh, there's definitely some truth in this. But we are not talking about the Greeks or Romans first. I just wanted to introduce them because they're going to become a hallmark here in this part two of the book. But we're going we're gonna to start in the East and the classical Chinese tradition which continued to be a product of a well-developed academic tradition based on the received wisdom of the past and lingering cosmology that saw moral conduct as a matter of acting in accordance with a larger universal order. And this brings us to our topic of the day. This is the world of Taoism. Taoism contained a mix of religious and philosophical elements that flowered in a dissident, kind of an anti-realism. And I do have to admit this topic can be a bit challenging to grasp, but we're going to figure this whole thing out together by the time of, of this lecture here. So in part two of the book, is there anything at all that can tie our current topic together with past civilizations and stories we've already read? Well, the answer is probably a strong maybe or probably, and so how's that for a hardcore definitive answer? And I know you'll draw your own conclusions as we get going, but it's kind of hard to generalize about an entire age. But one observes material advances in society all across civilizations by the 5th, 4th century B.C., Nothing, obviously, like our modern age and our modern technologies, but the increasing social differences that motivate people to seek personal advancement and promote their own self-interest are beginning to emerge much more strongly than the ancient tribes where, remember, just adherence to a social order for the tribe kept everyone alive, kept them safe. Now, all of a sudden, we're starting to see this diversification of life, this diversification of jobs and duties and roles and, and societies getting more and more complex. And so this individualism is beginning to emerge. And this reality leads to a more philosophical look at things. 
there is a corresponding emphasis on moderation, which is interesting. As if the greatest minds during this time are already seeing what materialism can do to a person far beyond the materialism that we know today. Uh, how they can impact a person, a family, or a society. And this finds expression, for example, in Aristotle's Golden Mean and the Middle Way in China. So the development of a, a recognized aristocracy also contributes to this idea that individual lives needed to rise above narrow self-interest. People who cultivate virtue and ethical judgment are happier when they don't let small pettiness or money or power and things corrupt their actions. So we've moved from a base survival to worrying about other things. One could argue if there are always higher things or more refined things, as often as we let silly materialistic things take way too important a place in all of our lives in this modern world that we live. Take it for what it is. There is good and bad in the advancement of civilization. The great minds, though, very early on, started to sense a danger in the budding sophistication of society and this fear that we are losing the things that connect us to the deeper, more metaphysical things of life. The ancient period was also a time of religious conversion. There was a slow, cumulative elaboration or expansion of a theological ethic that was based on faith and revelation which built upon earlier wisdom traditions and on newer philosophical sources, uh, supplemented by the teachings of charismatic leaders such as Jesus or Buddha, uh, which were soon to come. Uh, religions were more elaborate, more sophisticated, and more laden with rules, laws, and teachings. So there's some of the things that we start to see uh, kind of across the board. But enough of the part two background for now. Hopefully this helps set the stage for you of what we're going to dive into as we get deeper and deeper into part two of this uh, book. Let's get old though right now. And when I say old, let's go back to 571 BC and a brilliant individual emerges on the scene in China. His name is Lao Tse. He was an ancient Chinese philosopher and a writer. He's reputed to be the author of the Tao Te Ching. Uh, the Tao Te Ching translates very roughly to the way of integrity. He was the founder of philosophical Taoism. Although he has regularly been described rather simplistically as the founder of Taoism, this Taoist tradition goes back much further than him specifically, and it's way too complex to attribute him to being the designer or the initial creator. I guess it's probably more accurate to say that he was the major figure in the early philosophical tradition that we've been talking about as we started to document things that were known as Taoism, which later became institutionalized in, in a different guise as a religion or some would call it a movement. Lao Tse apparently was born, as best we know, in the state of Chu, and he became the historiographer. Uh, this is the official responsible for the imperial library, which kept the official records for the Zhao dynasty. 
This position of historiographer was a weighty, weighty responsibility since the official historians were in some sense responsible to heaven and, and even future generations rather than just one emperor himself because the recorder of history in ancient societies was literally writing what would be remembered for generation after generation. So it was a big, big deal to have that role. And since Lao Tse was the official librarian, he was familiar with the protocols of the time and, and was supposedly consulted by, by a younger guy named Kong Zi, who said at one point, today I've met the dragon. Lao Tse and Kong Zi lived during the late spring and autumn period. This is a period of turbulent change. Even, even though the Zhao dynasty didn't officially end until 221 BC, there was a lot of civil unrest in the life of Lao Tse. There was war and conflict, and, and so both looked at the near-distant past, looking backwards in time to this period of stability and social harmony, and this would impact uh, all the writings uh, throughout his life. But for this podcast, we're going to leave Kong Zai alone for now. Uh, we're going to come back to him soon enough in Lesson 6. Kong Zai, actually, the name that you're probably familiar with is Confucius. So, uh, just so just know that Lao Tsai was a highly respected and esteemed scholar. So, life as a cushy academic historiographer, it got very, it got much more compli- complicated by 516 B.C., as after the death of King Jing, uh, Lao Tse found himself living in civil war, and the collections of the of the Zhao Library were actually removed by one of the warring princes. Uh, Lao Tse then renounced the life of an official, and he just decided at that point to become a hermit, basically, like many of of us who have had enough with politics. Lao Tse, seeing all the upheaval, all the drama, all all the swirling stuff that goes along with being in the midst of all kinds of political strife, Lao Tse said, yeah, I'm out of here. But here's where the story gets a bit bit interesting. I, I don't know. I mean, I bet a lot of it's facts. Some might be some fiction or embellishment. Who knows? Uh, probably will never fully have the, the full answer on this. But when Lao Tse, as the story says, arrived at the western gate of the kingdom, wanting to leave and head out on his own life, the keeper of the gate refused to let him pass until he had written down his wisdom. The story has it that Lao Tse then wrote the collection of teachings, which is known to the western readers as the Tao Te Ching. But when you read this chapter... You hear the term Taoism all the time, and this refers to a loose body of both metaphysical, cosmological tenets, a a rather vague philosophical school, and and I guess even say a sort of religious tradition. Whether you want to call it a philosophy or metaphysical phenomena or just a religious doctrine, the way, as it's called, is a moral path. It's a moral path for people to reach their highest attainment on earth. There's a little Tao, which focuses on how you live as an individual. And then there is the great Tao, which expresses the cosmic order and universal will that we all, that swirls around us everywhere. The philosophical framework 
in the Book of the Way and its virtues created from early cosmo cosmological theories. And again, here we go. We're still passing down traditions orally, even to this point. We're going to get past that here soon, as I mentioned in some of the introductory materials. But the Great Tao is associated with the vital breath. It is the original state of being before human reality came into being. The Tao is apparently associated with non-being, out of which things ultimately are created. So the suggestion in early Chinese metaphysics is that non-being or not being anything at all is primary and the most important thing to being enlightenment is to be nothing. The great Tao is formless and nameless. The Tao that completes all things. It is bigger, grander, greater than any one word could capture or explain. The moral aspects of the mighty Tao come from the fact that it explains both the unity of things and the existence on the, of the multitude of very discrete or tiny things. That's a big mouthful, and it's hard to fully appreciate that. So let's look a little bit deeper, because I think as you read it over and over, it becomes more and more apparent and, and starts to sink in a little better. But in chapter 25 of the readings, Lao Tse is chosen to call the formless entity the mother of all things, the Tao but that it could also be called greatness. I guess you could almost say it's very similar to the great I am in Christianity. Yet, even that doesn't perfectly capture the essence of the great Tao. As, it, as in Christianity, we personify the great I am as the one monotheistic God, one supernatural being. And we see that in Christianity and Islam and Judaism. In the Tao, it's not. It's a force. It's an essence. In chapter 40, we read that, the, that being is born from non-being. This seems to be the source of the ethics that we often read in the Tao about not acting. Calming oneself letting go of things, which is integral to the teachings. As in that state of not acting, it's as close to the great Tao as a person can get. Now this is intrigue this intrigues us, Western minded people, immensely, especially in the hyper competitive, individual driven, get it done mindset of people in the United States. But metaphysically the Tao is the state or condition, essentially, which allows everything to come into being. And if anyone wants to follow the Tao as it manifests itself morally, we allow ourselves and therefore all things to be what they are. Your ego isn't going to solve any cosmological issues, let alone the tons of life happens moments we run up against every single day of our lives. Thus, the virtue lies in inaction or not doing. In the sense of not striving, 
which became the staple principle of early Taoist thought. Lao Tse openly rejects this new sense of individualism and competition that had come out into the open during this period of upheaval and political strife in Chinese culture. I think a lot of this may trace back to things that were going on in the, in the life and times of Lao Tse's remember. I mentioned earlier, in, in Lao Tse's lifetime, uh, there was a collapse of the political order. There was chaos, upheaval, war. Destruction were kind of the rule of the day for, for a large chunk of his life. Uh, to Lao Tse, it seemed quite literally that society had lost its way. Disillusionment was running strong with Lao Tse. And once the ancient traditions were abandoned for a more hyper-competitive power struggle, to Lao Tse, that's when chaos ensued. The rulers in the ideal past had scrupulously followed the Tao, which found expression in the customs that were to be followed by those in official positions. That disintegration of society was, a, was attributed to two core ideas by Lao Tse. And so let's go over these two core ideas about how society was disintegrating. Number one was the collapse of propriety or traditional rights and practices in favor of more modern liberal ideas. And then number two was music. Music is always fascinating because it played an official role in the life of the state. And music has always held a sort of metaphysical attraction to humans, even going all the way back to ancient tribal uh, drum beats and, and all the, the rituals surrounded by uh, the, the pounding of drums, the singing of music. So this was a deep moral issue uh, for Lao Tse. But the character of propriety is maybe more interesting uh, for me. And propriety, propriety literally refers to the rituals of a society and more philosophically to the internal ordering of the individual in accordance with the Tao. So these rituals which enhanced, which promoted, which connected people to the Tao were going away. The ethical argument is accordingly that the rights mean nothing without a sincere commitment. Rituals and rights don't mean anything if the commitment is lost. Rituals always lose their power without reverence for and a deep appreciation and a commitment to faith. Because when this happens, ritual becomes a sort of a practical, oh, what do you call it? A check the boxes type thing. This problem of just doing something without commitment has plagued the Christian church now for centuries. Here's a good example for you. The twice-a-year Christian goes to church on Easter and Christmas. Shows that when ritual becomes nothing but a mere social convention, the true reverence is lost. For many, even church weddings, they're just a really cool place for pictures that make grandma and grandpa happy to be married in the church, but not necessarily a requirement for a blessed marriage. See, Lao Tse was sensing these kind of uh, elimination or reduction of the significance of the rituals or the proprietary, propriety of his culture. And since the Tao, 
can be so hard to grasp. And so let, let's just go back here for one second in the readings. Because these rituals that were to connect with the Tao, if you don't get what the Tao is, then it, then it, the, the whole exercise in what you're reading becomes even becomes almost worthless in and of itself. So in the first excerpt from chapter one, uh, when you start to read, uh, it does feel overwhelming. But but let's read just one excerpt real quick. Quote: The Tao, the way a road that can be trodden is not the enduring and unchanging Tao. The name that can be named is not the enduring and unchanging name. Having no name, it is the originator of heaven and earth having a name. It is the mother of all things. Therefore, it is always from the being with, without form that the subtlety of the Tao can be contemplated. Wow, I mean that's that's a mouthful. Uh, but what I found personally most fascinating about this, the solution to the world's corruption lies in the appearance of the sage, the teacher, the prophet. But he has to be a true sage, as the true Tao is nameless. It's shapeless. It's formless. There's no language that can capture its essence. But here we are. We're human beings, after all. And, and we only know our existence from what we can perceive and define. It's our curse and it's our value as human beings at the same time. And this mind-numbing truth is hard to grasp. But, 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 but what we're getting with this Tao is... You cannot, as a human, define it in a dictionary book. It's so, it's deeper. It's embedded in your inner self. It's something you know without words to express exactly what it is. So this sage is the embodiment of the mighty Tao and the mystical virtue, which Lao Tse associates in chapter 51 with complete unselfishness without thinking without trying or acting the sage follows the Tao and the universal moral order he rules without in any explicit sense ruling anyone things therefore come to, to come to fruition simply by being without acting the sage transforms the world his virtue is the virtue inherent in the whole of nature. He is therefore one with all things, but yet ultimately with nothing. The materialistic world cannot touch the sage. So the pessimism that the thinking, striving human has failed in the writings of Lao Tse, it can easily be misunderstood. That no matter what a human does, there's no way. If he tries to strive and achieve, uh, they're going to fail no matter what. Uh, that's not necessarily the case. The Taoist view is that people are good, and Lao Tse is merely rejecting this New Age philosophical, political, scientific, technological advances in society not the full rejection of humanity, 
which at its core is good. It's just that this materialistic, driven greed stuff, it just continually takes us further and further away from our core of being. This rejection is fundamentally philosophical. The people are better, almost in Taoist thought, if they're left in ignorance. Much of the social deterioration in the world is ascribed to these crazy new ideas and the development of language even, which have a structure of their own that try to put such huge self-importance on itself. And instead of using our intellectual faculties to see things as they are, we use them to reconfigure and reshape reality so that it meets the outline of our ideas and our biases, our attempts to gain things and status. This is, to Lao Tse, the corruption of the deepest order of humanity. I mean, there's so many things I I want to talk about in this reading, but I have to bring this one up. And and I'm sorry, this podcast is going to go way longer than others. And and let me just get a sip of water here quick as I'm moving through this. But but chapter 67, here's another key, key text to understand Lao Tse and Taoism. It says this, quote, I have three precious things which I prize and hold fast. The first is gentleness. The second is economy. And the third is shrinking from taking precedence over others. With gentleness, I can be bold. With economy, I can be generous. Shrinking from taking precedence over others, I can become a vessel of the highest honor. Nowadays, people give up gentleness and are for being bold. They give up economy and are all for being liberal. And they give up the hindmost place and seek to be the foremost, the end of which is death. If there are any contrarians listening to this, sure, you can relate to how opposite this view is to the standard expectations of people in Western capitalistic society and how they're supposed to act. Now, in chapter 81, sincere words, again quoting, quote, Sincere words are not fine. Fine words are not sincere. Those who are skilled in the Tao do not dispute about it. The disputations are not skilled in it. Those who know the Tao are not extensively learned. The extensively learned do not know it. The sage does not accumulate for himself. The more that he expends for others, the more does he possess of his own. The more that he gives to others, the more does he have himself. Okay, so much here again. I just don't know. Um, If I had to sum up my thoughts and feelings of Lao Tse, I think as I read it, the two words that stand out to me that he is teaching is let go. To let go. So many people are wound up like a top. I love living in the South now, and I and I remember the other day I heard a guy, 
at a at a gas station talking to someone else. <laughs> he made this funny statement. He said, "If stress burned calories, I'd be a supermodel." Insert your southern accent there, which which to me was just absolutely hilarious. Should have seen the guy. Uh, not to pass judgment on his physique, uh, but that was some funny stuff. Now now listen, I don't know about you, but if Lao say uh, confirms anything that all of us need to do, need to listen to, is to just chill the heck out. We don't control all the externals around us. And it doesn't matter how worried or stressed or valiant you think your struggles may or may not be. You don't control them and you can't. Sorry. To Lao Tse, our our arrogance is thinking we control our destiny, which is silly. The truth is we need to just calm down, drop the ego, drop the arrogance and live. Live without thinking and stressing and striving and, and trying to convince everyone that we're right on everything because, well, you won't convince them. And heck, even if you could, it isn't going to mean a whole lot in the end. Life happens and the Tao goes on forever. And Lao Tse tells us, no, he actually implores us to just calm down and relax. We all need this. We all can benefit from these amazing teachings. So again, sorry I went so long on this, but this chapter really resonated with me and I, and I hope it does for you too. It's a really, it's actually a tough one to, to, to articulate in a podcast in, in this manner, but I, I hope you got value from it. Uh, after you finish up this one, next we're on to Kong's Eye or Confucius. And he lived from 551 to 479 BC. He's known in the West um, as as one of the greatest minds uh, to ever ever live. One of the most eminent thinkers in the classical Chinese tradition. But before we get there, I, I hope you will invest considerable time pondering this ancient wisdom text. I mean. I think maybe more than ever, we need to take heart of this material and learn to let go of some of the things that are constantly stressing us out, whether it be money or work or relationships or politics, doesn't really matter. There is a time and a place for everything, but the ability to just relax, to just calm down and let go is powerful. And we can do that if we can appreciate what Lao Tse is talking about, this universal Tao, which is just this massive life force that that's so far beyond our intellectual mind that it can bring some of the greatest peace uh, to all of us. So, on to the discussion questions. Invest time, or write up your thoughts on this chapter. I can't wait to see what you have to say. Uh, but until the next lesson, uh, have yourself a wonderful week.